Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Abraham Thomas, founder of Quandle. In our conversation, Abraham and I discuss his fascinating life, from being caught up in the first Gulf War, to joining a hedge fund in Japan, to founding and building up Quandle, one of the key players in the alternative data space, to selling it to NASDAQ in 2018. In other news, I have written a blog post around the past, present and future of alternative data, a link to which can be found on the episode webpage section. Abraham, I want to begin. I've just been looking at your background and I want to go I want to go far back. I think you've had a you've had a very interesting life even long before alternative data reared its head. So I'm I'm really interested to go back all the way to I mean you were you were you were born in South India, but you found yourself living in um Kuwait in the time of the first Iraq war, um, which I think sounds like a like a story. <laughs> how did that how did that come about? What was that like? How did you can you just put me there quickly? Certainly. Well, it it does feel like a story, kind of like an uh, like an adventure thriller to be honest. Um and I was 12 years old, so I suppose I didn't quite appreciate the gravity of uh, the whole situation, but it certainly was quite uh, uh quite an environment to be in. So my family um lived in Kuwait. Uh, we were part of, there's a, there's a very large Indian diaspora all through the Gulf nations. And we had lived in Kuwait for a few years. Um, I went to school there. You know, my, my mother was a teacher. My father worked for the Ministry of Health. Perfectly normal middle-class existence. And then um, one day, <laughs> it's, it, it sounds amazing when you think about it, we woke up in the morning to see tanks rolling down the highway. Literally, you know, look, 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 stepped out onto our balcony and we could see tanks. And um, as fate would have it, our apartment overlooked uh, one of the main uh, training grounds of the, of the National Guard, the Kuwaiti National Guard. And so a couple of hours later, we started seeing an artillery battle where the tanks are lobbing shells at the camp and the, the camp was returning fire. Um, so talk about being plunged straight into, you, know, you go to bed one night thinking life is normal, everything's fine. And the next yeah. morning you're in the middle of an actual battleground. So um, I mean, as a 13-year-old boy, there must have been something a little bit exciting about it. it oh, it yeah. certainly was. Uh, we, you know, we, we spent two days huddled in the basement, kind of uh, you're just making quick trips upstairs back to our apartment just to get water and uh, bread and stuff like that. Uh, one of those trips, uh, we actually... you know found that the window of my bedroom had broken and there was like a bullet. I actually retrieved a bullet shell, at which point we kind of decided that the adventure is all very well, but this is not safe for us anymore. So we kind of um, made our way to another part of town where fortunately there were no battles going on um, and we hunkered down. And it very much was. Uh, for the next two months, we lived in an occupied territory. There were troops everywhere. There were, you know, roadblocks and tests. And you hear rumors of firefights and assassinations. Um, we stood in bread lines. We had no idea uh, what was going to happen. And obviously, uh, a lot of the news source, this was pre-internet, so we didn't have access to a lot of information. And it was all whisper and rumor and innuendo. Um so quite uh, quite exciting, quite scary, but also 
for me, um, and looking back with the wisdom of hindsight, a very formative experience because you 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 kind of um, you know you you realize how fragile a lot of your life experiences are, and you kind of realize what's important and what's not important. And it, it gives, as I said, it gives you a certain perspective, especially when it comes to things like risk and risk risk tolerance. Um, and once you've been in that kind of situation, in an actual war, uh, or once you've had to leave uh, leave everything about your previous life behind and escape with just the clothes you're wearing, things like financial markets and whether a particular stock is going up or down, or you know, doing or building a startup, they just feel much uh, much lower stakes, so to speak. You, you you get to understand that you know all, all of this stuff doesn't matter quite as much as you think it does. And um, and that that in turn, I think, leads to better decision making and uh, just better perspective. And do you think so? Obviously, problems in the Middle East have continued most recently. Perhaps Syria. Um, do you would you think favorably towards perhaps a Syrian a- uh, applicant who had who had fled his country um, because he's likely to have experienced that? And do you would you would you back that theory far enough to actually give them the benefit of the doubt or is it you know oh, you wouldn't 100% I, I would take someone who has uh, who, who, partly because you know when you go through those experiences it changes you as a person and I think for the most part if you come through and you're resilient it changes you for the better but also because um, you know if you look at two resumes I'm just talking in the sense of hiring someone. Two resumes which are identical in every respect, but one person has had to go through far greater challenges to to achieve those those milestones. Um, you would you'd assume that, that that person has got something special about them. So, and and that, that's why I always I, I I do look at you know resumes from people around the world and. Not all of them had the privilege of, say, going to a private school and then going to an Ivy League university and then you know, interning at a, a fancy consulting firm or an investment bank or a hot startup. Instead, they've had to to struggle and they've gone through unorthodox and unfamiliar pathways. And um, and and yet, despite all those challenges, if they still have that an impressive resume, it's it's likely that they're someone special. It's a good sign. Okay, great. And so you so you go back to India. You do a, a BTEC in um, in back in Bombay, now Mumbai, um, and then you find yourself in a Japanese hedge fund. Now that sounds like another story. <laughs> How do you get from uh, Bombay or Mumbai to working in a Japanese hedge fund? It was completely through chance, serendipity. Um, quite out of the blue, I was offered a job um, by this Japanese hedge fund, of, of which one of the founding principals was actually from Bombay. Um, so he got connected to me and uh, offered me a job as, I, I think the best way to describe it would be quantitative odd jobs. <laughs> so everything from data entry to managing spreadsheets to programming to fetching sandwiches and coffee because you know, this was in the 1990s and that was what you're expected to do as a junior analyst. Now, again, this is the 1990s when hedge funds are not as uh, as famous or as, as notorious as they are now. And I didn't know the difference between a hedge fund and a hedgehog. But I thought, well, you know, this is... 
it sounds cool and interesting, you know, building mathematical models of the market and then taking advantage of um, opportunities. The hedge fund that I worked with, Simplex, was uh, probably Asia's oldest hedge fund now. They've been around for 25 years. Uh, They've got many billions of dollars under management. But at the time, um, like I mentioned, it was just a, a handful of people. And as a result, we were building everything from scratch which is a terrific, terrific education in analytical finance and quantitative finance, just building those systems and building, uh, designing models and testing trading strategies. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 so it was in addition to just the, the cultural experience of living in Japan at a very young age, uh, I also got to get in at the ground floor of a quant hedge fund when, again, quant quant investing was still largely in its infancy. And so that was a, a very rewarding few years for me. For sure. So you joined so you joined Simplex in in August nineteen ninety-eight, mm-hmm. which is just coming out of the out of the um Asian Asian crash, isn't it? I, I joined my my first week was the week that LTCM blew up. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> so it was quite uh, quite entertaining. It was, you know, I, I seem to be a magnet for the, the, the sort of dramatic uh, event. And did so, they did they did they ride that well? Was because hedge funds can enjoy crises. They did well. Well, post LTCM, there was just a lot of opportunity in in the quant finance space because there was just far less capital um, available to deploy and not many institutions with the with the technical and technological and financial expertise to take advantage of those opportunities so that that decade from about 1998 till not not full decade but i would say till around 2005 2006 was really really uh, a good time to be a quant hedge fund and I mean, and it's also intriguing that it was just um, that it was in Japan, that it was a Japanese hedge fund. What does were there was there much competition, and what was the how did the Japanese kind of working culture and and kind of attitude to risk and all these things? How did that bleed into into the investments? Is that was it unique? No, it um, it was certainly different. I mean, some backstory here is that. Uh, the the fund that I worked for, Simplex, was one of the offshoots of the the famous Solomon Brothers bond arbitrage desk that is you know, described in Liar's Poker. Yeah, uh, and um, the a lot of the folks from that bond arbitrage desk went on to LTCM. A few others formed their own hedge funds, you know, in the UK, in Hong Kong, um, and then the Tokyo uh, a bunch of folks from the Tokyo office of Solomon were behind Simplex. So we definitely had that that Solomon Brothers Wall Street DNA. But being in Japan also insulated us junk, a lot. That was junk junk bonds, wasn't it? The, the um, they did mortgage bonds, junk bonds. I myself traded uh, US treasuries, which uh, I always like to think, you know, that's the most liquid and heavily eyeballed market in the whole world, bar none, back in those days. So if you can make money trading treasuries, you can make money anywhere because it's just so competitive. So, um, and of course, these days, Simplex trades everything under the sun, because it's a huge multi-billion dollar fund. Um, I, I do feel that in many ways, being in Japan insulates you from the, the ebb and the flow and, and kind of the noise, the, the hype, as well as the despair. Markets are all about fear and greed. And if you're kind of in Wall Street, or you know, on Wall Street or in the city, you're surrounded by 
all these emotions. And it's hard to step back and have a really detached perspective. And for me, trading the US market or trading the European market while sitting in Japan gave me a sort of distance that that I think really helped uh, make better decisions. Of course, the the flip side of that is that um, my my hours were all over the place. You know, <laughs> trading trading New York markets while sitting in Tokyo is not is is uh, it's it, it's not great for your 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 social life or your uh, work life balance or your health. I'm um, sure. I'm sure. Oh well. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I think probably we should start talking about alternative data at some point, Abraham. Not a bad idea. <laughs> much, much, much fun as this has been. Um, but so, um, why don't you why don't you tell me how? Um, so you 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 leave Simplex in in August two thousand six. Why don't you tell me? Take me up to how Quandle came about. What was what was the origination of that? So Quandle, I think, like many technology startups originated from two founders solving their own problem, scratching their own itch, so to speak. Um, So talking for myself, as I mentioned, I was a trader and a portfolio manager at a quant hedge fund. Uh, My co-founder, Tamar Kemel, was a CTO at a hedge fund. And, you know, for both of us in our professional roles, we're always trying to make data-driven decisions. And we found that you know, usually the hard part is not making the decisions. The hard part is getting the data. Uh, so your typical data analyst spends an enormous amount of time just looking for data, acquiring it, ingesting it, cleaning it up, merging it, sorting it, synchronizing it, updating it. You know, all this tedious preparatory work um, and only spend a fraction of their time actually analyzing the data and making decisions with it. And you know, this was my life. This was Tamar's life. Uh, this was, I think, life for a great many people in in the financial services industry and in the capital markets, and you know, in most industries for that matter. And after after you left Simplex, then you spent some time doing doing consulting, and you were consulting with hedge fund managers, etc. And you were you were continuing to see the same issues. Live, living in the, in the this problem, not just for myself, but everybody I talked to had the same problem. Um, you know, and 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 it was only getting worse simply because the the quantity of data out there was exploding, and the the imperative for people to become more and more data driven was also increasing all the time. Gone were the days where um, an investor could just say, oh, my gut tells me that this is a good trade. Uh, You you have to back it up with data. So we, Tamar and I, we were sitting around one day and we said, wouldn't it be great if there was just a single website that just did all of this stuff for you automatically? A place where you could go and find whatever data you needed on whatever subject you needed in whatever format you needed, um, talking to whatever system you needed at the click of a button. And uh, we said, okay, it doesn't exist. Let's go out and build it. So, uh, and that's, that really is, uh, is the way Quandle started. The two of us um, had this idea and we were both engineers by training. So we dusted off our engineering skills and we, uh, this is such a startup cliche. We rented uh, an office in a basement um, actually, we rented a room in somebody else's basement office, and we coded up a prototype, version 0.001, uh, 
we showed it to some friends and some got some users and said, okay, this is actually kind of cool and kind of useful. Um, and uh, we raised a little bit of money from friends and family, and we used that to to move from our basement office to another office that actually had a window. And we thought that this is it. We've made it. This is uh, <laughs> the big time. We hit the big um, time. Exactly. Nice one. Nice one. So this is May 2011. You're in, you're in is, Toronto, Toronto, Canada by now. We're in Toronto, um, Canada by now. I, I moved here to be with my partner who is, um, who's an economist and uh, is, is a professor at one of the universities here. Fantastic. Um, but so, and, but so you, so you, um, you both created this company. What did you see as being the, who did you see, did you think you had any competitors at that point? Or did you think you'd come up with something completely new? Well, well, we knew the financial data space quite well. And back then it was really quite different. So the, the dominant model was the terminal. Think of the Bloomberg terminal or the Icon terminal. Everybody was building new terminals, and you know they want the the terminal providers wanted you to do everything within that terminal. And we quickly realized that that's actually not the way that data scientists like to work. They would rather you know they don't want to be within the confines and the the restraints of a terminal and only doing what following what functionality the terminal offers. Instead, they want to get the data into their own system and work with Python or R or Julia or MATLAB. Um, and so that was quite different. And um, so al al although we knew that, I mean, obviously the financial data industry is a huge, huge industry, but nobody was quite taking the approach that we were taking, which was, we don't want to control what you're doing. We don't want to keep you within our system. Uh, we want to... Uh, get you the data so you can get on with your life and do your analysis the way you want it. I think there's actually quite a nice analogy with, um, say, between Yahoo Search and Google Search. You know, back in the 90s, Yahoo was the most successful search company in the world, and they encouraged users to spend as much time as possible on the Yahoo homepage. So search, but also there's a portal and there's Yahoo News and Yahoo Finance and Yahoo Sports and so on. And then Google comes along and Google is a breath of fresh air. Their website was just a, an empty web page with a single box. You, you type in your search, you get what you need, and you're out of there. And Google actually wanted to minimize the time you spent on the Google property. And we had a similar philosophy at Quandle, which is that we don't want to build a terminal. We don't want to do your analysis for you. We want to just give you the data you need so that you can get on with your life um, and, 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 and add your own magic, your own insights, whether it's quantitative or qualitative. We'll just get you the data. Okay. So that, I think, was... Um, so in, in a sense, we were working with the same raw material, but we had quite a, a different approach to data consumption, and of course, it's now become quite commonplace, right? All the big providers now have their own API and their own integrations and their own data export services. But back then, I think it was quite revolutionary. The other thing that we did quite differently was just our pricing model where, you know, it's again, with the terminal, it tends to be one size fits all. You, you pay a large amount of money and you get everything, all you can eat. And we were like, no, that doesn't make sense. You should just pay for what you what you want. So, you know, whether it's $100 for one data set or for data set A or, you know, $100,000 for data set B, it doesn't really make a difference. But if you want A, you shouldn't be paying for B and vice versa.
Yeah, but so com- so competitive-wise, you're t- you're very much talking about the more traditional sources like your Bloomberg's, etc. I mean, this was 2011, so it was before alternative data had a name, mm-hmm. um, and there were people like um, what M Science, who were majestic, I believe, mm-hmm. back then, who were collating alternative data and providing research on it. Eagle Alpha hadn't didn't exist yet; that was 2012. So that a new data as well, kind of 2015 or so I want to say Mm -hmm. Um, but these things which are kind of discovery places where you perhaps you could call them catalog um, Mm -hmm. alternative data scouts where someone can come and and discover kind of a long list of alternative data providers so in a way in what you created um, it didn't exist at that point how would you would you differentiate yourself from those eagle alphas and and new datas and, and how would you so back when we started and, and and actually, let's fast forward a few years into the journey. So call it around 2014, 2015. Um, we had a bunch of data on our website. We had a functioning data marketplace with um, what they call, what, what tech startups refer to as liquidity. In other words, a, a critical mass of buyers and sellers transacting on the platform every day. And transacting, sorry, just quickly, transacting on the platform, or you would introduce them and they would actually do the deal off the platform. At that time, you know, it was complete. We were we were always a very internet first company, so it was we we would never even talk to our our customers. Instead, they'd come to the platform, search for the data they needed, find it, pull out their credit card, uh, buy it, and and go on their merry way. So there was no introductions. That sounds very quick. It it was very quick. But evaluating data takes a long time, doesn't it? Well, keep in mind that in those days, we were still largely focused on traditional financial data. So talking things like Ah. market data, earnings estimates, um, financial statements, economic data, stuff like that, which is well established. So that's why you're thinking of Bloomberg is because at the time they were your competition. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, and. You know, we we were aware, very aware that being internet uh, cloud native and an internet marketplace allowed us to go after that long tail of data, which is what alternative data was. And we were, of course, quite aware of the the existence of that category um, you know, coming from the hedge fund world as we did. You, know, you can't not know of it. But I think we had one big insight, and this was a couple of years into the Quandle business, which was um, most, as you correctly said, back then, say, call it 2014, 2015, there were a handful of uh, data providers like Yodli is probably the best known one back then. Um, there were a handful of firms like MScience or Majestic who were essentially intermediaries going out and looking for data and transforming it and generating some value off of it. We're talking um, about alternative, were, alternative data now. Alternative data, yes, alternative data here. And then there were some, you know, there was a, a small handful of hedge funds that were quite active in the space, um, looking for new and unusual sources of data. And what we realized was that all of these folks had a alternative data was still perceived as something that grants you an edge, alpha, uh, something that's unique and something that needs to be kept very secret and private and um, exclusive. And that in turn led to what I would call a a sales-driven approach to growing the business. So what I mean by sales-driven, I mean that individuals, 
data hunters or, or data vendors would go out and try to look for customers or look for new sources of data. And, and that, you know, for, so there were, there were a number of hedge funds, for example, that had data acquisition teams and their job would be to go out and look for data. And we realized that, especially with the incredible explosion in the quantity of data out there and the number of firms that are collecting and that own data assets, that there's a huge long tail of interesting data and that when you have a long tail, instead of a sales approach, what you need is a marketing approach. And what that does is that instead of you going out looking for data, you get the data to come to you. And that was the key breakthrough, the, the key idea or insight that, that Quandl had, which was that as a marketplace, uh, if we can get, if we can, and we already have the liquidity, we already have the customers, if we can get the data to come to us, that's a huge competitive advantage. So back in, 20, as early as you know, 2015, 2016, when everybody else was treating alternative data as you know, this very cool trade secret that generates alpha and that you don't want to ever talk about, we were out there shouting from the rooftops, hey, guess what? Alternative data is, 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 the, new, uh, is the new hot thing in finance. And uh, we, we hosted, a, we ran a conference in New York City. We called it the Alternative Data Conference. I mean, now these days there's, there's tons of conferences. There's one every other week. Well, not during the pandemic, but uh, leading up to the pandemic, there's, there's a ton of conferences. Mm. But back then, we were, I think, the first one to host one. And it was all about, ed- and we sent, we invited about 200 of the best known and biggest hedge funds on Wall Street. And a large number of them turned up. And then we spent a day just educating them on this new category in the market. This is a thing, you know, alternative data. There are all these untapped sources of information that could be additive to your portfolios. And we talked about things like how do you evaluate a data set? What's what's the how do you how do you test its quality? How do you price a data set? What's the commercial model? How do you deal with alpha decay? How do you deal with exclusivity? And you know we we did a lot of that work. And simultaneously, we were out there educating the, the supply side, the data vendors. We were saying, okay, if you have data, you're probably sitting on a valuable asset. You should explore. How do you price it? How do you sell it? How do you dis- distribute it? How do you manage trials? How do you deliver the data? Um, and so we really... Grew the market. We grew the market, you know, and, and we... we we and um, you know we got a lot of coverage from you know say the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. They all wrote articles about us, and that opened the floodgates. And we started getting inbound inquiries from all these folks on both sides, from companies, not data companies, right, and not companies in the financial services space at all. These are you know logistics companies and software companies and oil and gas producers and, um, you know, hardware companies. And they all call us and say, hey, um, we have some cool data. We don't know if it's valuable or not, but we saw your the work that you've done, you know, your, read your resources and your white papers. Maybe we attended your conference. Um, and we'd love to know if there's something, something that we can do with our data. And simultaneously, we, we got all these calls from hedge funds asking the, the mirror image of that question, which is like, what cool data do you have that uh, nobody else has seen? 
Yeah. So you were doing so you were doing lots of this wonderful evangelist work, which was growing the overall market. I mean, growing the alternative data space at the same time. How were you coping with because you're 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 transitioning from traditional data to into alternative data as it grows? And it sounds like your focus is is somewhat shifting. You're seeing the opportunity here. Mm -hmm. How is that alternative data obviously is a different kettle of fish for to in terms of just managing it and in terms of actually as we kind of touched on earlier in terms of being able to evaluate whether it's whether it's got alpha or not how how mm. you know and so that automated buyer meets the seller online in a in a direct and we just allow we just facilitate mm -hmm. that transaction um how did that change the the mechanics of it when we get into alternative data? Yes, it 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 suddenly had to change. So with alternative data sets, um, when you know when the price tag is say a hundred thousand dollars for a data set, it's quite hard to for someone to just come to your website and pull out their credit card and pay for it <laughs> without ever talking to anyone. So um, no, so we had to change or evolve quite a few things, both around. Uh, the the sales process, as well as the trial process, as well as the the research process. So, and let's let's take that in kind of reverse order. The first part was the research process, where with something like market data, traditional financial data, there's not a there's obviously a bunch of stuff you have to do around data quality and and data reliability, but nobody really questions the value of the data itself. Stock prices are stock prices. You know, um, whereas with alternative data, you might have you might encounter ten different data sets, and the reality is nine out of ten will be will be junk. Well, not junk. Junk is too strong a word, but just not that valuable to institutional investors. And particularly when, like, it could have value, but actually the value of extracting that value might be more than the value you can get from it. Exactly. The cost of extracting that value might require a lot of work to, to figure out, okay, what's the application for this data set? What kind of uh, alpha can you get from it? Or what kind of capital can you deploy against it? How, how robust and how rigorous is your backtest? How certain are you that the data will continue to work? All these questions. So we ended up building a, a full-fledged data science team within Quandl, which uh, which I would say you know, it, it's comparable to the the alt data research teams within many hedge funds. Most of the people, almost all the people on our team are actually former hedge fund professionals, so they know that. Um, that process quite well. And uh, it helped, of course, that I had 10, year, uh, 10 years of experience as a quant hedge fund portfolio manager. So I was very, very familiar with how, how to do that. So we built a research team and, um, you know, we would see we would and we would in a way we were almost victims of our own success we did we did so well at evangelizing this new space and creating this category that we would get a flood of inbound inquiries from data vendors um, i suppose it's to be expected you know if you if you shout from the rooftops that hedge funds will pay good money for data sets well what do you know a lot of people's come out of the woodwork with data sets for sale. Um, so you know, so, uh, so we, we were indeed victims of our own success. And so a big part of what we would do was filtering, winnowing the wheat from the chaff. So filtering out, we'd see a few hundred data sets every quarter, but we would reduce it to maybe two or three 
that would actually make it through all of our tests and our research to say that there's actually value here. And then we put it on the platform. Um, so that was, and that was the next innovation that we'd had to do was building out a, uh, a sales team for alternative data. And it's a different process from selling financial data, which can be zero touch, no human intervention. With alt data, because it's a higher price tag, people want to test the data. They want to see that it works. And you have to speak the language of your customers. And, you know, they can be, there's a spectrum, right? There can be very, very sophisticated quant hedge funds, um, all the way to much more traditional discretionary managers who are just dipping their toes in the water of, um, of new data sources. So we had to build out that specialty. So you winnowed down all the potential data sets and you said these ones have value. And so anyone coming to Quandle to, in order to, to buy data, the data they got from Quandle they knew would, would be high quality and there was a kind of Quandle stamp of approval on it. But that would have, that would have limited the numbers somewhat. It was, it was like how many, how many data sets roughly are we talking? Exactly. So, we, so in fact... And and this is this has been a trend that I think has accelerated in in recent years, which is uh, quality over quantity. I feel that there's the one of the biggest challenges for data users on the buy side, whether it's an asset manager or institutional investor, is that they're overwhelmed by the sheer number of data sets out there. You know, if you pick any random category, ESG data, there's 20 providers out there, or social sentiment, another 20 providers, footfall data, there's probably 50 providers. How do you know which is the best one? Um, and that's it, it's overwhelming. And so we made a conscious decision of, we don't need to have, and we shouldn't try to have every single data set in the world on our platform. We don't want to be a catalog, and we don't want to be comprehensive. Instead, we want to be more of a, um, a, a, a very high-class boutique where yeah. the very best data sets are on Quandle. Um, so we definitely think that there's, we added a lot. In fact, if, if I were to ask you right now, how would you characterize the, the value prop of Quandle to our buy-side customers? I would say, well we see a ton of data and then we filter it down to the small handful of data sets that are worth your time. Uh, that's very interesting, Abraham. In terms of, in, did that change the business model in that did you, uh, were you then tied in to the, the providers or were you a simple middleman still? I mean, or did you, were you buying the data from the providers in order to resell it? Would, did, it did it change the, the transaction? It didn't change that too much. I mean, we've always worked on the principle that um, we want to be aligned with our data providers. So, uh, you know, so we we typically have a revenue sharing pattern where if we make sales, we share in the proceeds, and and that worked well for us. Okay, okay. So this is a, and was that was that a, a kind of a big company pivot? Did it feel like, or were you still doing the the traditional data stuff as well? It didn't feel like that much of a pivot, to be honest, because you know we, we, st we still continue to do the traditional data, and that continues to be a, a a very healthy business, growing really well, and it's you know fantastic for our brand and for our user base. Um, it was just an additional layer, and, and and from the point of view of the technology, 
a data set is a data set, right? You, you have the web platform and the search engine and the, the API and the delivery mechanism. All of that, it doesn't matter whether you're delivering end-of-day stock prices or something extremely unique and proprietary and exclusive. Data is data. It flows through the pipes in exactly the same way. So it didn't really feel like a pivot in that sense. It just felt a little additive. So in addition to everything that we already have, we now also have a a research team and a sales team. And Quandle's big. (laughs) It's a big company now. Or or, um, or obviously it's been acquired now by NASDAQ. But but I've got it in my mind as being a a relatively large headcount. When Mm -hmm. When did that happen? Is there was there a year where you suddenly where you suddenly ballooned or was that was it gradual? So I, I would probably have to give you a, a data driven answer to that and kind of look up the the HR records. But uh, there was never any big bang in terms of oh we we, we have to double our headcount this year. Uh, it was much more organic and steady growth. Um, how how big how big was Quandle when uh, by headcount roughly when you were acquired? When we were acquired, it was. Around 50 people, a little bit north of that. Okay. Um, it's since we've grown quite substantially since then as well. I um, see. But yeah, I see. so that makes sense. Okay, interesting. <laughs> okay, brilliant. So that brings us up to December 2018, and Quandle's um, acquired by Nasdaq, which is mm-hmm. a huge success and a huge, you know, a huge compliment and a, and a huge kind of congratulations for for kind of for for that for that compliment in a way. Um, but so, um, what did what did Nasdaq see in Quandle? Well, presumably they told you. Um, and what was the what was the what was the model? How did Quandle kind of fit into the into the overall company? From at a very high level, Nasdaq as a company, of course, is they have a very huge franchise selling data of various kinds. They have lots of different um, investment intelligence uh, insight, not just market data, but kind of allocation data and performance data, you name it. Mm. Um, they also understand marketplaces really well. I mean, better than anybody in, in the world. They built the very first online marketplace 50 years ago. Um, sure. And of course, they're also a very um, technology-focused company. And you know, NASDAQ's technology powers many stock exchanges around the world. So data, markets, technology. I mean, that's kind of a, a, a perfect fit for Quandle, which is essentially a tech startup operating a marketplace for data. So just at a high level, it's, it's, it's kind of a very natural um, fit. And what they saw in us was largely what, what I talked about earlier, which was that we had built almost like a, a, an alternative data acquisition engine in that, at, at least in North America, and increasingly so in, in Europe and the Far East, if you are an organization with data and you're looking to monetize it, I can almost guarantee you that um, you will call Quandle because we're just kind of the market leader and we have all of the world's largest hedge funds and investment banks and asset managers and so on as our customers. Um, and we have the, we're one of the best-known brands and reputations. So... It's it, it 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 just and in the data business, that is what matters, right? Having access to the raw material, having that that inbound engine. So I think that was um, 
the 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 secret sauce that Nasdaq saw in us, which um, Nasdaq saw alternative data as the future, saw that it was a bit of a gap in Nasdaq services, and then saw Quandle, which was like a baby Nasdaq, which would fit in perfectly and would be this wonderful funnel for future alternative data data sets, and would just be the the kind of the ready-made stepping into this market fully formed type thing. Exactly, exactly. They, they saw an, I, I, you summarized it better than I could have done so myself. <laughs> no, I was just, I was just doing what you did. Um, but so, um, okay. So that's, so that's great. So you, so you kind of, you're subsumed by the, into the, into the, into the larger company in, in December, 2018. And you've obviously, you've been working, working out your, your period at NASDAQ post um post acquisition for the last uh two and a half years is it um something like that um how have you seen how's how's quandle changed during that period um well it's grown for starters which is which is very nice i I think that was also part of the the motivation from from us as founders you know, as a founder, it's always difficult to to sell a company that you've kind of grown from inception to maturity, especially if it's the company's doing really, really well, which was the case for Quandle. And and this, you know, going back to 2018, when Nasdaq came knocking on our door, we were actually just preparing to do our our Series C of uh, venture capital fundraising, mm-hmm. and. Our plan was to take the, the, those funds and invest in global growth. So you know, we were we were back then predominantly uh, a North American company in that most of our customers and most of our data sets were in the United States, and we wanted to expand to Europe. We wanted to expand to the Far East, you know, to Japan and China and Australia and Hong Kong and so on, um, and we wanted to build out our sales and marketing team globally and uh, Nasdaq came knocking on the door and well, guess what they already have that global footprint they already have sales relationships uh, sales teams on the ground in all those places with relationships with all the major institutional investors in all those places so it felt like by partnering with Nasdaq we could kind of almost fast forward into the future um by by two or three years, and you know, just just plug into their their global distribution, which was really fantastic. Uh, and then the other thing which attracted us was simply um, partnering with a brand like Nasdaq, which is such a such a well known and well respected company globally. And you know, obviously within the alt data space and within North America, Quando is extremely well known, but. You know, if you're meeting someone, say, in Tokyo, bring a full circle back to Japan uh, for the first time, um, the NASDAQ brand is just much more recognizable. So that was also super attractive. And I'm glad to say that, you know, two or three years, two and a half years post-acquisition, that has played out um, pretty much exactly the way uh, we we had hoped. So, you know, we have... um, uh, we, we now have Quandle slash NASDAQ uh, team members around the globe, and we have uh, so many relationships that NASDAQ has just made so much quicker and easier to uh, to establish. So it's been good, and you know we're just growing fast. So same model, just much, much bigger. Much super, supercharged with scale. That's exactly That's right. 
And this is your baby. This t- this tiny baby has now become a kind of honey. I grew up, blew up the kid kind of baby. <laughs> um, and uh, and you've and you've left it behind, which is the natural order of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this is this is the this is you succeeding um, in in, mm-hmm. in in what you set out to do. Um, does it feel a bit a bit? Is it hard to leave it behind? Um, I mean, there's always some element of that. It's it's you know it's bittersweet like it is your baby and you've you've spent so much time and uh, invested so much in it on, along every dimension but as you said it's the natural order of things and i think we have a, a really really amazing uh, next generation of leadership that that's just keen and eager to to step in um, and step up where Tamar and I used to be and and just take it in hopefully directions that we never even imagined it would go um, you know, not just doing more of the same, which and your alternative data is still in the the early innings, to use a to use an American metaphor, but um, but but there's so many other directions as well that you could take out the technology, the platform, the kind of data assets that we have. There's just a lot of um, empty uh, green fields to to expand into. Tell me. Um... Before we talk about your next your next um, ideas and, and thoughts and, and where you are now, what do you think? So you have had the front seat position for alternative data's um, emergence, growth, kind of um, yeah, like uh, coming into the public eye in the last in the last ten years. Where do you think we are now? What do you see? as the next ten years in in alternative data? Where what 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 should where should we be watching? So for me, I think the most interesting part is uh, watching the transition from early adopters and and to an extent early mainstream to becoming fully baked in and almost table stakes. And that's, I think, where we are right now. So when we started um, doing alternative data at Quandl five years ago, or even before that, when I was aware of the space, most of the the customers and the users and the early adopters were sophisticated investors, mm-hmm. um, quant hedge funds or you know, very uh, data forward non quant hedge funds, and um, and it makes sense. You know, quants are used to working with data. They have both the both the uh, tech, technical capability to handle large amounts of data, as well as the the organizational DNA to make decisions based purely on data. And as time goes by, you know, it, the the use of alternative data, as you know, has spread from those early adopters and quants to many more types of investors: um, discretionary, fundamental, quantumental, uh, everything in between, and uh, and it's widening. But there's still a large universe of investors, both retail and institutional, um, that don't use alt data in any way. And it could be for multiple reasons. It could be because the technology is beyond them. So that's kind of empty space for firms that are taking alt data and packaging it and making it more accessible to to customers who don't have the technical jobs. Part of it is also because of, of kind of almost like behavioral it requires a behavioral change, you know. And I always think about this in terms of workflows. If you're a quant, your basic workflow is I get some data, I run some analysis, I get some signal, I 
test the signal. If it works, I put it into production. And it's very easy to plug new sources of data into that workflow. It fits quite naturally. On the other hand, let's say you're an old school discretionary investor. What does your workflow look like? Well, you know, you 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 identify some companies of interest or a sector of interest. You read their annual reports. You read a bunch of research. Um, you interview the management. You analyze their sales. Uh, and then you figure out something that you know that the market doesn't know. And you make a position. Now, where in that workflow does data fit in? There's no natural spot for alt alt data to to change there are a couple of spots but yeah, you know they, it's it's not entirely obvious for a really old school discretionary traditional manager to fit data in and that's what's and so the emergence in recent years of the so-called quantumental firms is is figuring out a way to to merge quantitative techniques and using data into that more fundamental investment process and that i think is still very very open territory in terms of figuring out the right user experience model uh, the the right workflow integration model the right technology and so on so that's i think where we are right now and as for where we will be 5 to 10 years from now this is a pattern i think that has happened again and again in the financial markets is that new data sources become they're initially new and exciting, but eventually they become table stakes. And I, I do think that, um, you know, we call it alternative data, but there's nothing new under the sun, right? We, people have been looking for new sources of information advantage for decades, if not centuries. And there might well be, and I think we were already saying in the US, North American market, I think consumer transaction data and footfall data is well on its way to becoming table stakes. It's, you, you don't, Investors don't necessarily look at that data as being holding untapped alpha unless they're willing to invest a lot of resources into you know, pulling out signals. Um, but it's just like table stakes, right? It, 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 it'll be like almost if you are able to track sales at The Gap or at Walmart on a daily basis, it's almost irresponsible to not do that and instead to wait for quarterly financial reports, which give you a, a very delayed and aggregated and backward looking um, metric of those same sales. Yeah. So it, it, it becomes, it really becomes table stakes, almost like a fiduciary thing where I think certain all data sets will just become quite standardized. Um, if I have a digression, if you, if you'll allow me, I, I, I've been reading, I, I the, if you read books about markets from, say, 100 years ago, one of my favorite books is it's called Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. It's kind of the memoir of a trader who traded from the 1890s through the 1930s. And, you know, it's surprisingly sophisticated what he talks about. He, he knows about, intuitively, he knows about things like fat tails and autocorrelation and different volatility regimes. And he doesn't dress it up in the, in the mathematical language that a modern quant would use, but he, he definitely understands and takes advantage of these patterns intuitively. Jesse, Jesse Livermore. It's Jesse, Jesse Livermore, Livermore. that's exactly yeah. right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's also equally, so, so in that sense, it's astonishingly fascinating, right? But what's equally fascinating is 
looking at what he does not mention, not once in the book does he mention things like PE ratio or earnings or EBITDA or EPS or you know, balance sheet or leverage, none of that. And that makes good sense, right? Because back in the 19, you know, 1920s or when he was trading, that information was not widely available. It certainly wasn't standardized. Um, you know, uh, Graham and Dodd only published security analysis sometime in the 1930s. It took until the 1950s before um, com- the SEC started mandating that companies publish financials. It took a, some more time, a couple more decades before we um, the, the generally accepted accounting principles, gap rules became uh, widely followed. Again, it took another decade or so before uh, Thomson Reuters and FactSet and Bloomberg started digitizing those financial statements um, and making them widely available. And now, of course, everybody uses them, right? You learn it in first year MBA. Your, your first course is an MBA, is security valuation. How do you look at it? How do you read a financial statement? And kind of the point I'm making is that no, I'm with you, Abraham. You're making exact you're you're making exactly the same point that I've wanted to research and look into myself. Yeah. It sounds like you're you're way ahead of me in terms of so, alternative data is just the new form of data, which you know, uh, however, seventy years ago or whatever, um, then what we call data now would have been alternative data. Exactly, a data set emerges. Initially, it's quite obscure. People don't know how to use it. Many people don't use it. Eventually, it becomes standardized. Eventually, it becomes digitized and widely accessible, and eventually, it becomes table stakes, and people just take it for granted. Um, and uh, maybe the timelines are more accelerated now. And certainly, with the internet and technology, the quantity of data out there has exploded. But you see this pattern again and again. You know, not just financial statements. I could give you half a dozen examples historically of data sets that start out being cool and exclusive, but end up being table stakes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So in five or 10 years time, alternative data just becomes um, is will be subsumed into the market as just what everyone uses and it'll be on everyone's interface. It will be taken for granted. Not by the way, mind you, not every alternative data set will go down that pathway, but the, the best ones will. And, and that, again, I think uh, is consistent with what I was saying earlier about Quandle, where we are very much about these days, quality over quantity. It's not that you need millions of data sets to generate alpha, but there are a handful of data sets that you... It, it, in fact, it's not even so much about finding a relative advantage over other people. It's like if you don't have this data set, you are at a relative disadvantage versus other people. And that's the transition that's happening in the next few years, which I think is going to be super interesting. What does this mean for people who are currently working within the alternative data space? Um, it's a good question. I think that as with most spaces that uh, are going through this transition from early this early explosion of interest and talent to kind of a steady growth maturity, there's likely to be some consolidation. Um, uh, you know, we saw that thing. It, to move to a completely different industry, automobile manufacturing, right? In, in the 1920s, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of car manufacturers in the United States. Uh, by 1950, there were only three, and it's been three ever since then. Now, now four with Tesla, and then there's been a, a recent resurgence thanks to electric vehicles. Again, the number is expanding. But a new technology comes in, there's an initial explosion 
Um, then there's consolidation, and then you wait for the next wave. So I think that that works quite well with alt data as well. Um, there were a few early pioneers. Then there's suddenly, these days, we're in the, the explosion part of things. But I do think that we're going to see some consolidation and uh, um, you know, a, a, a handful of players will increasingly dominate the space. Um, because data also, not all data is created equal. The best data is worth a lot of money, um, but there's a lot of data that is simply just not that valuable. Okay, great. That sounds that that's a very comprehensive and excellent answer. Thank you very much for that, um, Abraham. You have, um, as you've as we say, you've left your you've left your baby, which you grew to be a to be a monster <laughs> in just in terms of size, um, and um, you are now um, you're now um, exploring your situation. Last time this happened was after you left Simplex and you spent a, a number of years consulting and, and um, taking some, uh, have taken an extended sabbatical, etc. Is that the plan again? What's the plan? What do you think? Yep, more or less. I, I plan to take some time off, um, have lots of conversations like the one we're having right now, um, mm. explore different ideas, mostly at the intersection of data and markets and technology, which is kind of the, the space I, I'm most familiar with. Uh, and, and, you know, there's just so much interesting stuff going on in the world. I would love to be, love to figure out uh, a way to be part of all of it and, and, and figure out my next venture. Don't know yet what it is. Uh, and I don't even know when I'll know what that is, whether it could be next month, could be next year. Don't quite know. Um, but I'm excited to find out. Is there a is there anyone you'd like to hear from? Like, is there a type of person that you'd like to be you'd like to be hearing from in, at the moment? Um, so I, I'm I'm interested in anyone. Uh, so quite apart from my 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 day job at Quandl and uh, previously at a hedge fund, I'm also a fairly active angel investor, and I invest in startups around the world and. I have such great conversations with founders doing very interesting and innovative things. I still focus largely on the data and fintech space um, and marketplaces. I have a few things that I know well, Mm. but those conversations are really fascinating to me because it just tells me just how much untapped opportunity there is, how many, there are so many problems in the world just waiting to be solved. So um, those are the conversations I, I do enjoy having. Um, and, and in a typical barbell move, I also enjoy conversations. I've had a number of conversations with uh, extremely large organizations. We're talking, you know, asset managers um, with nine digits under management, uh, mm. Or, or more, you know, nine-digit billions. <laughs> so, uh, mm-hmm. so, sorry, three-digit three digit billions. I've, I've lost count of the digits. Um, <laughs> well, you really <laughs> had my attention more, then. More than you can count. But the point <laughs> is that they're all uh, retooling for this data-driven future. Mm-hmm. And it's quite interesting to see how they navigate those challenges because everyone's becoming more data-driven. Doing that at scale is quite non-trivial. Right? It's one thing to to reinvent your entire process when you're or to build it from scratch when you're a hedge fund with only seven people or you know or even twenty people or even fifty people, but when you have five hundred people or a thousand people and you're managing you know 
$300 billion under your umbrella or, you know, um, it's, it's a different scale of challenges. And those are really interesting to me because, um, you know, that, 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 that's also how you can make a massive impact. So those are the two kinds of ex- answers to what kind of conversation that are extreme, two different extreme ends of the spectrum. I, I love to hear from founders in basements and garages, and I love to hear from <laughs> massive, massive organizations because they're, they're both d- looking at the same problem, which is we're moving into a data-driven world and we're still figuring that out. Um, are there any are there any small companies that you've invested in that you'd alternative data companies you've invested in that you think might be worth a mention? I haven't actually invested in any alternative data okay. companies yet. Um, I I'm mean, obviously aware of a lot of them. I have I, I and I've been chatting with a lot of them, but no investments yet. Uh, but watch the space. Yeah, you're free now. You're a free man. Uh, you can do whatever I, you want. I can I can indeed. Yeah, fantastic. Brilliant. Well, Abraham, that has been extremely comprehensive and fascinating from my perspective. Um, thank you. We've been on a we've been quite a we've been on quite a trip from from the Gulf War across Japan and to um, into into Kwandal and beyond. It's been uh, it's been great. So um, thank you so much for sharing all your experience and um, and uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be keeping a very close eye on your LinkedIn page to see what comes next. Mark, thank you very, very much indeed. It has been an absolute pleasure and uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. We did indeed cover a lot of ground, so it's been fun. Uh, thank you once again for having me on and yeah, I, I'm looking forward to whatever the future holds. <laughs>